The first reading will be from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 1 to 22. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and the laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor, nor your male or female servants, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. I have the privilege of bringing you a bonus reading, and it's Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I've got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. 
One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus says, said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Matt Fuller. If we've not met, uh, senior minister, he'll be lovely to do so at uh, some point afterwards. It'll be great. Um, and if you are joining us tonight, we're starting a little series uh, in the 10 words. That's what they're called in the scriptures. Actually, never the 10 commandments, even though they get translated that way. Let me uh, lead us in prayer, and then um, we'll start properly. Our great God and Father, thank you that those of us who are Christians this evening, we come and we gather together, and you say to us, I am your God. You are the Lord who has revealed himself in time, in space, in history, supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are our Father who speaks to us now the words we, your children, need to be shaped, to be formed into your people. Father, speak, we pray. You are the Lord our God who has brought us out of slavery to sin and death. Would we, your children, listen and so be shaped by your word this evening? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Every so often, um, something will cause the press or someone to have a little debate. Uh, uh, what would be the modern Ten Commandments? If you're going to rewrite them, because obviously the ones in the Bible are terrible, most people would say. If you're going to re rewrite them, what would they be? Well, although it kind of goes that the last five are all right. Um, we wouldn't want to legislate on all of them, adultery, coveting. We don't want to legislate on them, but pretty, pretty much they're okay, the bottom five. But the first five, all about God... Well, they're shocking, and obviously they've got to go. And generally, that's kind of the, the, the chat that takes uh, place. But uh, a little while ago, I read an article. It's a fascinating article in the New Statesman um, by uh, philosopher Julia, Julian Beghini. He's not a Christian by any sense. And um, he sort of went along that. And he said, oh, of course, in modern society, we mostly sort of agree uh, bottom five, they're pretty good. Top five, terrible, and we need to get rid of them. But, but, he said, it's difficult that, because without the first five about the Lord, there's kind of no reason to keep the bottom five. Unless there is a lawgiver who speaks into the world and says, these are the rules you must keep, why would you trouble to keep the bottom five if you disagree with them? How do you decide what's right and what's wrong? So he puts it in this, in this uh, I thought it was a lovely sentence. We want the protections of morality without having to defer to it. We want the fruits without the roots. 
but we need something to do the work today that the first five commandments did for centuries, or we have no ground for do not kill, do not steal. We need something, otherwise they just float in the air. And he recognizes, he, he um, has reference to uh, some other research that had been done, uh, a recent poll, 58% of uh, the population of Bangladesh feel that honor killings of uh, women who have brought shame to the family is fine. So if your daughter, your wife, or something, has done something that's brought shame to your family, 58% of the population, male and female, say that's fine. And in Pakistan, uh, 88% feel that a wife must always obey her husband, no matter what his requests. Now, I don't know how you feel about those. Presumably a little hostile. Uh, and you might think, well, that's outrageous. But then you might sort of also feel a little bit nervous. But can I tell them they're out, that's outrageous? Does that make me a cultural imperialist? Am I allowed to tell Pakistan that their behavior is awful? Or does that make me a racist? Ah! And uh, the sort of liberal sensibilities get tied in knots. To which Julian Beghini says, we've got to have something. Otherwise, the, these commandments don't steal, don't lie. They just float. There's no foundation to the ethics unless there is a God, a lawgiver, who says, this is true. You've got to have something. Which is why in the Western society or a Judeo-Christian society, these Ten Commandments have always been viewed as fundamental importance. Now, what exactly are they? As I say, the, the Bible never calls them the Ten Commandments, uh, even back in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 13. I guess that's, what, that's how the English translation is. But literally, it's the Ten Words. Because they're not these Ten, they're not laws, not statutes as such. They're broad principles, you might say. And they're principles that the Lord gives to shape his nation. He says, I am the Lord who's brought you out of slavery. Out of, out, of, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And now, here is a summary of the sort of people you should be. And I'll get into detail legislation in the next few chapters. But you should be shaped by these. And they're, they're broad principles designed to keep us free. Not restrictions to kill fun. Here are some broad principles. And you operate within them. You have enormous freedom. You might think something like a Formula One. A Formula One track, uh, if you ever go or you watch it on telly, uh, very obviously has barriers around the edge of it. Safety barriers and big rubber lumps, tires. Uh, and uh, I've never heard any of the drivers saying, I'm, I just really resent the safety barriers. They just kill my fun. They just restrict my freedom. They think... I'm meant to drive around this track, and I'd rather be safe, and I like doing it at 200 miles an hour. That's fun uh, and exhilarating, and therefore a little protection is good. I know I go this way, and I can drive at 200 miles an hour and have enormous fun doing it, but I want some barriers to keep me on the straight and narrow, or the straight and narrow, anyway, to keep me on the track. And in the same way, these commandments, thou shalt not, they're barriers around you, have a lot of fun. Live your life at 200 miles an hour if you can. But they're just there to protect you. Life will go better if you operate within them. They're designed to protect your freedom to enjoy life, not restrict you in any sense. There's freedom to have fun working within these Ten Commandments. 
Now, we need to think uh, a little more in detail about how they apply as Christians. Obviously, Israel is different. Uh, you and I this evening, we have not been brought out of Egypt uh, to come here tonight. Well, one or two might, but um, uh, not enslaved in Egypt. Uh, and there's no promise to you and me that if we honor our parents, then um, we'll go and live in Canaan for a very long time. So we have to think, but I'm going to hold back on that and we'll do that next week, because otherwise we'll never actually get going on the first commandment, which is where we're at. First is six and seven. I think of the first commandment, I think all of it is, because it's the first word. There are ten words in, uh, in this section. I think verses six and seven is the first word. I want to look at it like this. Your God saves, and the implications, he must be first, and Jesus alone saves. It's not the best outline ever, but uh, let's work through it. Your God saves is the big truth and the big big implication of the command. He must be first. Your God saves in verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, one other little thing in that uh, article I read in the New Statesman, Julia Beghini, he said, of course, I I don't like the fact that in the Bible, it's just commanded the only reason you're given to obey is God says so, and he's more powerful, which for a very bright man is a very poor reading, because there are numerous reasons, well, two obvious reasons just in verse 6, why Israel is to obey. I am the Lord, your God, there's a relationship, and I've saved you, brought you out of Egypt. Very strange. I am the Lord, your God, relational, I've told you, you know me. There's a world of difference in that little pronoun, isn't there? I uh, could stand up here this evening and say to you, you you may or may not realize, but I am phenomenally wealthy and generous as a friend. I am worth several hundred million and incredibly generous friend. That's not true. But um, imagine it were true. I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly wealthy and generous as a friend. It's a bit different than actually I am your friend who is incredibly generous and wealthy. Well, that might be a bit more interesting. Where do you own Holiday Homes, Matt Fuller? Um, what are you going to give me? If I am your friend and I'm generous, it's different, isn't it? Because you benefit. The Lord says, I am your God. There's a relationship that's there. And he saved them. He's brought them out of the land of slavery. Uh, And of course, that order is so important. The Lord says, I I am the Lord your God. I know you. You know me. I've revealed myself. I have saved you. And therefore, I expect you to live this way. Here is the response. Here are the the words or, or the commands. I save you. You respond. And that's always the way, biblically. Never the case in the Old Testament or the New Testament that our behavior brings us into relationship. It is always the relationship with the Lord that issues in a change of behavior. So important to get that the right way around. I might say to my teenage son, I am your biological father who brought you into this world, brackets with a bit of help, um, uh, from your mother, but just wrong. I am your biological father who brought you into the world. I command you to take the surname Fuller. And... uh, well, in real life, we'd say, yeah, whatever. I mean, why wouldn't I? Um, but, uh, but imagine if I'm with it. I have brought you into this world, 
and I give you, I command you to take the surname Fuller. Well, that would be entirely appropriate and normal and sensible. You here this evening could think to yourself, I quite like that as a surname. And you come up and tell me, oh, last week I changed my, my surname by deed poll. And I am now, whatever it is, Naomi Fuller. And uh, I've changed my name. Well, that doesn't make you my son or child or daughter. Um, the the name, no, only if you are biologically mine does it make sense for you to take the name. Taking the name, taking the commandment doesn't do it. That's not a great illustration. But you see here, the Lord says, I've saved you. Now here's how you live. He doesn't say, if you live and obey these Ten Commands, I will save you. The order is so important. So important. And of course, Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says similarly, uh, uh, something like a John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, there's no other savior. I alone am the one who saves. And if you accept my salvation, well, you'll follow me. You'll obey me. Your God saves. That's what he does. That comes first. And then you get verse seven. He must be first is the, uh, the issue here. He must be first. So I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. Literally it is you shall have no other gods upon my face. Um, that's sort of what? Um, so no other gods before me is a very good, uh, sensible translation. You could translate it before or besides. Both are true and have slightly different nuance to it. So now the God before me is a priority. You can't have anyone else ahead of me, before me. No, no one else can be number one. Because it's in that sense, I mean, that, you hear that, but when it's pushed, it is striking. We got um, Jesus' words from Matthew 10. Anyone, Jesus would say, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we might think, oh, ouch. But the Lord says, I'm first. No one else before me. No one else ahead of me. No relationship with a parent or a child comes before your love for me. It's pretty demanding. Of course, when you dwell upon it, think about it, you realize straight away, these 10 words, commands, they're really not laws because they're making enormous demands upon our heart, upon our emotional life, upon our affections. You, you are not to love anyone else more than you love me, says the Lord. These are not rules for the law court. It's an issue of the heart. It, of course, explains, again, going back to the sort of Beguini point, the, the philosopher Julian Beguini, why, that the first five, and this one in particular, really do ground the, um, the second five in the Ten Commandments. There's a coherence to them. So you might think of it this way. Um, take one, I don't know. Why do people lie? Someone lies. Well, someone will lie if they've broken the first commandment and love, I don't know, money more than the Lord. And so they lie at work to squirrel some money away. They lie on a tax form because they don't want to give away as much of their money. Why would someone lie 
because they don't love the Lord first. Something else has taken first place in their affections. Why would someone uh, commit adultery? Again, because they don't love the Lord first. They love romance, uh, just physical act of sex. They, They love them more than the Lord. You see, if you break this one, you can break the others. If you keep this one, you will inevitably keep the others. Nothing ahead of me. No rival to me. I must be first, says the Lord. So no other God before me, or as the footnote tells you again, you you could equally translate it, besides. No other God besides me. That is, you're not allowed multiple gods. You can't worship the Lord and other things as well. Syncretism, I guess, is the posh word, but you can't do that. Solomon is a great example of this going wrong, so uh, I may not read all of it, but um, here's uh, uh, 1 Kings 11. Solomon was a great king, and then he wasn't. Uh, Verse 4 of 1 Kings 11. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not fully wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like his father David had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, did not follow the Lord fully. He followed the Lord and, and, and. So you shall have no other gods besides me. It's that you have no other gods upon my face, no other gods that I can see is the sense of it. You can't two-time the Lord. So imagine it this way, uh, uh, a man uh, a man is having an adulterous affair with a woman and uh, he brings home one day uh, to the marital home, uh, he brings his mistress home and uh, this is a surprise to the wife and they go up to the bedroom and he says, hello wife, this is my mistress and I'd like you to observe the two of us having sex, we're going to do that in front of you. Don't do that in front of my face says the wife. Don't have any other gods in front of my face, says the Lord. No adultery. It's why it's the the most common metaphor in the Scriptures, probably, uh, certainly in the Old Testament, for unfaithfulness to the Lord. You can't have him and others. No other God besides me, alongside me. I must be first, no other before me, and unique, no others alongside me. It's me, says the Lord. Thing, isn't it? Let me ask you two little questions. Uh, first, uh, just to push it in in one sense, do you, do you praise the Lord? Because what's it? The, the, the first command, it is, it is really about our emotional life and our emotional life played out then in decisions. But what gets you excited? What makes you praise? The expectation here is If you've got no other gods before the Lord, he's the one that gets you most excited. And so, if there's something else that gets you most excited, you've broken the first commandment. Do you praise him? I was really struck, uh, reading earlier in the week, uh, one, it's the Westminster Longer Catechism, but anyway, one one document talking about different ways you could break the first commandment. Uh, It was pretty detailed. And you read it, and you go, uh, but uh, one, one sort of jumped out at me that um, lukewarmness breaks the first commandment. And I thought, what? 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 Why? 
Uh, and that was the one that made me pause and think most. Lukewarmness. Well, it's obviously in the New Testament, Revelation 2, Jesus hates it, but if I'm, and of course the unsettling thing is, plenty of us would feel that way quite a lot of the time. But if I'm lukewarm, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, it's all right, uh, most of the time, people at church are okay. Um, and uh, Jesus saved me, that's good, but, you know, doesn't give me everything I want. Lukewarmness, if I'm just lukewarm about the Lord, there must be other gods beside him, or possibly before him. Something else I'm caring much more about. By contrast, if I am joyful in the Lord, independent of my circumstances, joy is a real expression of faith. Grumpiness rarely is, but joy is, I am delighted to have the Lord as my God, even though I've just got a puncture, I've got to repair it, and I'm late for a meeting, whatever it may be, I'm, I'm still delighted. So I paused and thought about that and thought, question Matt Fuller, why are you not more joyful? What is, what is going on? And I guess it's familiar things. Often I'm probably more anxious. My brain is more preoccupied with family matters. And therefore, yeah, probably at that point, I, I, they are before the Lord. Certainly in my thinking, in my priorities, in how I'm orientating my time. Certainly in my emotions at that moment in time, because I'm getting more upset or worried or anxious about them, that, that I am in, being excited about the Lord. Sometimes it's that. I think sometimes I'm just knackered, which is why I'm not joyful. And it's quite hard to be joyful when I'm exhausted. And then you think, well, why are you exhausted? Well, maybe that's overwork, and maybe that's not great either. Maybe you care more about your work than you do about the Lord, which is particularly perverse for a minister. But why is it? If I'm lukewarm, what's, what's happened? But there's one question just to ask yourself. What, what, do you praise him? I guess it's the real challenge of this first word, what's first in your life. Do you praise the Lord? And then very similar to it, do you trust him? Do you trust the Lord? Or what do you think is the source of your safety? Where do you sit in a chair and think, I'm all right, things are good, because things are all right because I've got a little nest egg in the bank. <laughs> um, things are all right because if, if the money runs out, my parents will bail me out uh, uh, and they're my safety net. Uh, things are all right because basically I'm really intelligent and will pass all my exams, that's fine. Uh, uh, things are all right because I'm very able and therefore my career will go well. Um, who do you trust? I, as I sort of was playing through the, this in my mind, I thought, actually, do you know what? Quite often the answer to that question is me. I think things are going to be all right because I'm competent and I can do a good job in these different areas of life. I mean, I actually find it really unsettling how much confidence I have in myself. And if you know me well, it's really unsettling. Um, quite often I trust me, my resources, abilities, my planning. Who do you trust? Well, when things go well, who do you thank, therefore? I sat in a Bible study. It was a terrific Bible study in the week. Uh, Psalm 115 begins, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. When things have gone well, is your default, Lord, that's you. That's you. Thank you. 
Who do you trust? Who do you praise? They just kind of scratch away a little bit and it reveals where we're at with this first commandment. Your God saves. The implication is he must be first. Now let's try and have a bit more help with this. Let's turn to Jesus because he's the one who uh, alone uh, saves. Which is why I had read, um, do flick on will you back uh, back to Luke chapter seven. You might think to yourself, oh this is a familiar passage. Well it's a bit like the parallel we had read in Mark last Sunday night. Uh, But if you're following the church Bible reading plan, we read this in the week, and um, Wednesday, I lose track, Uh, well, I guess whatever day the seventh was. Um, But uh, we read this in the week, if if you're going through that plan. And verse 47 in particular jumped out at me. Let me give you a bit of context, of course. um, If you hear the first commandment, "No, no others before me, no others beside me, and you think, oh, that's impossible, love me ahead of your family, ahead of your children, ahead of your parents, ahead of anything else. You are joking, Lord. If you find it hard, well, here is a bit of help, I think. If you find it hard, it's because you've forgotten what Jesus has paid for you. See, here we are in Luke 7, of course, the Pharisees, um, uh, they're outraged at this a woman of ill repute um, is uh, with Jesus, touching Jesus. Jesus tells this little parable. Let's pick it up, verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50 denarii. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which of them would love him more? So, you know, obviously, over a year's salary or a month's salary, let's keep it simple, someone just waives your debt of a year's salary or a month's salary. Obviously, the, the person who's got the bigger debt wiped out is the one who's thankful. But let me read, verse 47 was the one that jumped out at me when I was thinking about the first commandment. Jesus says, I tell you how many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Or, to phrase it positively, Whoever loves much has been forgiven much. So if you find yourself hearing the Lord tonight say, put me first in your affections, and you think, but I don't love you very much. I don't love you ahead of my children, ahead of my parents. The reason for that is you don't understand the debt that he's wiped out in Christ. Because if you know you've been forgiven much, you will love much. If you know what Jesus has done for you, you will place him first in your affections and therefore in your decision making. It's not complicated according to Jesus. If if you don't love him a lot, you don't realize that you've been forgiven a lot. If you do love him a lot, you do realize that you've been forgiven greatly. But of course, most of us are Christians, we know that cognitively, but it just... We just forget, and we need to be confronted on a fairly regular basis with, it is extraordinary how much he's forgiven you. This is poor illustration, but um, 
about a, about a month before my father died, uh, he gave me his car. It was a couple of years ago. He gave me his car. He was never going to drive it again. He was too unwell. My mother had a car. So um, you just look, your car is terrible, which it was. Uh, have my car, which is new and nice, which it was. Um, so, you know, there's lots going on at the time. She says, oh, cheers, Dad. And uh, that, that was about it. Um, uh, a few weeks later, he had died. And you know, okay, what's this car worth? Because I need to sort of register it for tax purposes. Um, you know, little Google... Uh, what's this worth? We buy any car.com. No, it's no advertising. Um, but uh, what is, what's this car worth? Oh. Oh, right. Oh, that is quite nice. Oh, great. I'll sell that and get something else. Um, no, I want to drive it for a while to honor him and that sort of thing. But, um, uh, oh, I hadn't. It just will pass me by. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this. I'll give you this. Great. Oh, what you've given me is, oh, it's more than I realized. If you're a Christian, you just you need that moment regularly. Jesus has forgiven me. Yeah, it's good. Oh, oh, actually, he's forgiven me. Oh, that that really matters. Actually, my sins there there are more of them than I realised. I'd actually oh no, I've thought a bit about hell again and recognise to be saved from that for heaven is is extraordinary. No one else does that. I love my parents, but they can't do that. I love my kids, they can't do that. He's the only one that can do that. He is the Lord, my God, who has brought me out of slavery to sin and death. He should be first. He really should. I want him to be first. I feel that he is first. And so we're going to confess our sins before the Lord. It's, uh, it'll come up on the screen or um, uh, in these sheets. And again, not, not to make us feel bad, but we confess our sins so we recognize that we're loved. We confess to remember what he's done is very wonderful. His words from Jeremiah chapter two, confessing that we exchange him for other gods, idols. Let's join together in these words. We say together, Merciful Lord, we your people have committed two sins. We have forsaken you, the spring of living water, and have dug our own broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We have exchanged you, our glorious God, for worthless idols. Faithful God, we acknowledge the guilt of our rebellion against you. We turn from detestable idols and return to you, our Father and most beautiful inheritance. Amen. By way of assurance, let me read you the words. It's actually the, it's from the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. This is centuries old. But it captures this sense of the first commandment well. Let me read it to you. What is your only question? What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. 
In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is your only comfort in life and death? If you understand what Christ has done, you say, there is no other that has died for me to rescue me from hell for heaven. There is no other that I can trust like him who knows every single hair on my head and has planned my life for my good. I trust him. And when you know who he is, you love him. There are no rivals to him. There's no one close to him. He alone is the Lord. Worship him alone. Let me do this in prayer together. Great God and Father, we recognize that the, the world uh, around the church, those, those who are not Christians, hear no other gods before me and think it's outrageous, think it's unreasonable. Father, for, the, for those of us who are Christians, we know that the tension in our own hearts, and we think, well, that's probably right, and yet there are other gods I worship besides him. There are other things in my life that I put before him. So Father, please, please persuade us afresh, remind us, deepen our conviction that you are the Lord God alone. There is no one else other than the Lord Jesus Christ who brings us out of slavery. There is no one who can comfort us like him. There is no one who loves us like him. He is Lord alone. So would he be first? Would we put aside the rivals to him? Would there be none before him, none alongside him in our affections and therefore in our decision-making and our planning? Father, please would we do that for the honor of your name, but also because it's how we're meant to be. It is for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.